Dear friends, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me now to Luke in chapter 24. Luke in chapter 24. We are reading the second half of the story where Jesus is meeting His people on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to begin our reading in verse 28 and read through verse 35. Before we read God's Word together, beloved, let's ask the Lord's help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come in need of Your Spirit to enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of Christ. We need spiritual discernment that only You can give. And Lord, we pray as we read, as we study, we ask that You would cause Your Word to impact our hearts, make us receptive to the truths that You would teach us. And we pray that You would sanctify us by Your Word of truth. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, brethren, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? Again, we are in Luke 24, starting in verse 28. This is God's word. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, that is Jesus, though veiled to them, he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of bread. Well, this is... God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Last week we looked at this initial encounter between the resurrected Lord Jesus and two of His disciples who were making their way towards Emmaus. Christ has come near to His sad, doubting, and overwhelmed followers. However, their eyes were kept from seeing Him. They don't recognize Him at all. Now, at this point, their hopes are hanging by a thread because they have oriented their whole lives around Jesus. But their beloved Jesus had been condemned and crucified. And they say as they're explaining these things, it's now the third day since these things have happened. They're not hoping for resurrection. Nobody seems to be believing in that at all. They're just recognizing they don't seem to have any hope. What are they to do? How are they to think of these things? And while they would like to believe that death has not prevailed over Jesus, they can't seem to make sense of all that is happening to them. They certainly don't understand this whole suffering Messiah concept. And they certainly don't know how that relates to Messiah's glory. Reports have been coming in about an empty tomb and a vision of angels saying that Jesus lives. But that hasn't sealed the deal to them because no one has seen 
Jesus. Now, by this point, unbeknownst to these fellows, there have already been three encounters with the resurrected Christ. This story is the fourth. But because their eyes are dulled, they have no comfort. Yet rather than disclosing Himself immediately to them, we saw last time that Jesus unfolded the words of Moses and the prophets concerning the suffering and glory of the Christ so that they might first believe the testimony of Scripture. Jesus had famously said in a parable back in Luke 16, if they do not believe or hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should be raised from the dead. The Word is central. Now, we don't know how long the sermon went on, but it's a seven-mile trek to Emmaus. An educated guest would say seven miles, walking at a relaxed pace, it would take something like three and a half hours. So let's assume, having a vigorous conversation, that Jesus has been interpreting the Scriptures to them for two and a half to three hours. And then, according to verse 28, they finally draw near their destination. Well, what now? Well, the encounter with Jesus who is veiled to their eyes is about to come a revelation of Jesus. And as that unfolds, I want you to note three things with me in our passage. First, see with me, opened eyes. Opened eyes. Now, as we get into this section, some people get heartburn immediately because verse 28, we're told as they drew near the village, Jesus acted as if He were going farther. And instantly, folks are stirred up into a tizzy asking, is there some deception here in Jesus? Is the Lord pretending? Is He not really being sincere? Well, when the testimony of Scripture overwhelmingly asserts the blamelessness, sinlessness, flawlessness, the purity of Christ, that seems like a silly conclusion. The sense of the scene is this. In the eyes of these two men, Jesus is a stranger. His identity is veiled to them, though He had been traveling with them, asking if He could join them on the way. And as a stranger, He dare not act as though He could enter their village and stay wherever those guys were staying and have a meal with them. You don't meet a stranger on a plane, have a long conversation with a stranger, and then that guy assume he can then come over to your house take a shower, and eat your food. You would have to issue an invitation. Well, likewise here, the unrevealed Jesus would have gone on. He would have passed them by, which is a very significant biblical concept. Unless these men expressed a desire for Him to remain. Jesus is not a rude companion thrusting Himself into your house. So without an invitation... Jesus would have gone farther. But, verse 29, they urged Him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is evening and the day is now far spent. The verb to urge strongly means to press hard, to forcibly prevail upon. Maybe like your grandmother urges you to eat more. How you must have seconds. Well, this verb relates to hospitality. It's used when Lydia at Philippi is converted, when Paul was preaching and the Lord opened her heart, and then she prevails upon Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy to come stay at her house, and they do. 
The scene here is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 18, when Abram insists that three travelers stay with him to eat and not just pass by. And it turns out that these three travelers are the Lord and two angels. Or there's Lot in Genesis 19, who urges the two angels in the form of men not to sleep in the city of Sodom, but to come and to stay with him. And while we might say there's an ethos of Middle Eastern hospitality compelling the stranger to come in, I think we would totally miss the intent of the text if we fail to see a connection between the previous conversation and now this invitation to stay. These two disciples don't know it's Jesus. But this stranger has just opened up the Scriptures to them in a powerful, comprehensive, passionate way. And His teaching has touched their hearts. More on that in a minute. But now they want His presence. They crave the fellowship that they felt with Him in the truth, nourishing their hope in the Christ, supporting their faith which was stumbling. So having been prevailed upon with such love, this earnest desire for continued conversation in the things of God, Jesus, we read, verse 29, went in to stay with them. And I want you to notice the third occurrence there, uh, or in this section of the with them or with us. It's the idea beginning in verse 30, when, sorry, ending in verse 30, when He was at table with them. They had urged Him to stay, verse 29, stay with us. He went in to stay with them. And in verse 30, He's with them. Do you think Luke wants you to catch something? The repetition of with us or with them in such short succession is clearly communicating a bond between the unrevealed Jesus and these two disciples. We might say, though the disciples don't know it's Jesus yet, They are craving His presence. There's a spiritual stirring to be with Him. Now obviously, this is a unique moment in redemptive history. We are not going to have a moment when the risen Christ is literally walking with us while yet not not unveiled to us. Short of the day in the new heavens and new earth when Christ will dwell with us and we enjoy His presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're not going to have His physical nearness right there in our midst. Nevertheless, there is a principle here of communion to learn. Those that truly love Christ, those who love Jesus' Word and take delight in His sweet fellowship, will pursue communion with Christ. We will prevail upon our Lord, urging the Lord Jesus, whose nearness we crave, to come to us, to abide with us, to rend the heavens and come down to meet with us. It's like the call of Henry Light's hymn, which we just sang a few minutes ago. In view of the nearness of the end of his life, Henry Henry Light wrote, based on this very text, Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. Do you hear? Abide with us. It's it's now the evening. Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. 
the darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. And then light goes on. I need Thy presence every passing hour. What but Thy grace could foil the tempter's power? Who like Thyself my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine? Oh, abide with me. Beloved, is there a craving for the nearness of Christ in your soul? Is there a desire to have a Word-centered, heart-warming fellowship over the truths of Scripture? Do you plead with the Lord that He would be near you, that He would visit you with a felt sense of His presence, strengthening you with His sanctifying truth? Do you long to meet with Christ? For how does Jesus tell us that we relate to Him? He says the one who seeks finds. Or Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. He says, He has not forsaken those who seek Him. Or Psalm 27, verse 8, David quotes, You have said, seek My face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Brethren, do you seek the Lord? Our, our faith here is not simply an intellectual pursuit of facts. We Pursue communion with a real person, Christ. Are you doing it? Now, I know that these two disciples have not yet realized who Jesus is, but they do recognize the truth He speaks is good for their souls, and they crave that truth to comfort them. Was that true of us? This should be the state of soul of every believer. That we are begging Christ for His presence. That we hunger for His Word to feed us. We want the company of our Redeemer. So that we say with another hymn writer, Bernard of Clairvaux, who wrote the hymn, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. We say, O Jesus, ever with us stay. Make all of our moments calm and bright. Chase the dark night of sin away. Shine o'er the world. Thy holy light. Is that what you really long for? Jesus to come close and to drive sin out and to give you a sense of His presence? Well, having stayed with Him, a strange thing happens. Suddenly, the guest becomes the host. Now that's weird. And you should recognize it's weird. If some guy was staying at your house and then he assumed leadership of how the meal was going to be distributed, you would think, what are you doing? That's my job. Well, nobody says that to Jesus. He just assumes leadership. Jesus the stranger, and I think there may well be a Psalm 23 connection. The good shepherd who nourishes us, who is with us in the hardest of times, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he becomes the host. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We read verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, this language, specifically the four actions, took bread, blessed, broke it, and gave it, are used in two previous passages in Luke. The feeding of the 5,000 and the Lord's Supper. And many, many expositors tie this text to the Lord's Supper in particular. And the language does have a link. 
But I would caution us against thinking that Jesus is celebrating the Lord's Supper at this moment for three pretty obvious reasons. One, only the apostles were present at the Lord's Supper in the upper room. That is, the eleven who are now, and then Judas, of course, left. So these two disciples, Cleopas and whoever was with them, they didn't have that recent experience. The apostles haven't even understood that recent experience, and they haven't made sense of what Jesus was saying. So the Lord's Supper would not be in the minds of Cleopas and his friend. They don't even know about it. Second, there's no mention of the second element. Wine. The Lord's Supper does not appear that frequently in Scripture, but when it does, the two elements are essential. First uh, Corinthians 11, the ongoing practice of the church, which the Corinthians happen to be messing up, Paul tells them it's to have bread and wine, symbolizing the broken body and spilt blood of Jesus. Well, that doesn't happen here. And then Jesus, you remember, when He first instituted the Lord's Supper, He indicated He wouldn't drink the fruit of the vine in this meal until He drinks it anew in glory. In other words, the Lord Jesus won't conduct this meal with His people, with His physical presence among us, until the new heavens and new earth of the marriage supper of the Lamb. All that adds up to mean this meal is not a miraculous meal, a multiplication of bread and other things. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's just a common meal. But even in the common meal, Jesus had a pattern of doing things. He was always the host as the head of His people. He was the one giving a blessing of benediction. He was the one distributing the bread. And these actions would have brought to the disciples' minds the Lord's patterns. And at this point, He chooses to reveal Himself. We read verse 31, "...and their eyes were open, and they recognized Him." Now, there's no natural explanation for how they suddenly recognized Him. I I joked with you last time, He's not wearing a Jedi cloak. And now He throws it back. There's not a fog in the air, so they can't really see Him but now they're in a house and it's gone away. No, this defies natural explanation. He had opened up the Scriptures to them while their eyes were kept from seeing Him, and now their eyes are opened to Him by supernatural power. And yet as soon as they recognize Him, what happens? Verse 31, He vanished from their sight. Another proof, I think, it's not the Lord's Supper. He doesn't share the meal with them. He leaves. Questions galore come up with the vanishing Jesus thing. How did Jesus vanish? What does it mean about His glorified body? Why did He leave them at this moment? What is that supposed to teach them? We need to be careful about drawing conclusions about things of which we can't be certain. But it would seem to suggest that Jesus' glorified body, though material, real flesh and bone, He's not a ghost. More on that next week. He will eat in other settings. He will have visible wounds that can be seen. He can be touched. And yet, His physical body is capable of appearing and disappearing. Many of you will want to know, does that mean my glorified body will do that too? I don't know. We're not given enough information. It may be the case. But what is Luke getting at here? Well, maybe the simple message is... Something simple. Jesus is really alive. That's the point. 
The words of Cleopas and friend earlier about the women testifying and a couple of disciples running to the empty tomb had stressed, but Him they did not see. And yet now they see Him. He lives. Brethren, our Savior lives. You're supposed to rejoice in that truth. That is the foundation of our hope. If He doesn't live, we should all go home and get back in the bed. But He lives. However, as Jesus taught His disciples, He's going away. He confirms to these first witnesses that He lives in real glorified flesh, but His physical presence will not be with us. He goes to prepare a place for us. He departs to send the Spirit who will be our comforter and helper and defender and instructor until the day comes when King Jesus comes back and we are glorified together and we reign with Him. This will be a season of walking by faith and not by sight. For Luke and the one to whom he writes, Theophilus, they don't have the physical presence of Christ. They have His spiritual presence. So while Christ is present in this story for a moment physically, it will be a spiritual presence that we enjoy in an ongoing fashion. Relating back to the Lord's Supper, brethren, when we do celebrate this remembrance of Christ, when we remember Jesus, it's a spiritual presence that we have. The Lord reminds us at the table as our host that He is with us, nourishing us, confirming His triumph to us until He comes. And until He comes, as He did with these two men, He communicates His presence chiefly with His Word and secondarily in the breaking of bread. And yet, we can have confidence that that Word and this sacrament we have are not pointless because He lives. Their eyes are open to that truth. And secondly, see with me, burning hearts. After Jesus vanished, the two disciples, verse 32, said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? These men's burdened hearts, gripped with loss and grief and disappointment, are now burning hearts. Now, what exactly does that mean? And what was the means of setting their hearts aflame? Well, clearly this is a figurative expression. Ordinarily, the word for burning is used to describe a lamp that burns. God's presence on Mount Sinai, the mountain burns. Or the fires of hell that ravage the ungodly. Real fire. But here, there's no real fire. It's figurative. But there's a response in the affection of intense emotion and excitement. Such was the impact of the truth that Jesus taught that it is though their hearts were on fire. And notice the means of setting their hearts on fire. It was the opening up of the Scriptures. The Word of God itself, as it was preached, it caused their hearts to burn. Now, we have read of the preaching of Jesus on many occasions in Luke's Gospel. Jesus preaching to the Pharisees. Jesus preaching before He multiplied bread and fish for the 5,000. Jesus preached at Capernaum and Nazareth by the sea and in Jerusalem. But there were many, many times where no one responded. They were in awe of His authority. They were amazed by His miracles. But their hearts remained stone cold dead in sin. But John had spoken of a day when Messiah would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit in fire. 
It echoes Malachi 3, that the Lord Himself would come to His people as a refiner's fire. The refiner's fire is language of judgment, but in the heart of the, um, of the believer, it's burning away the dross, the impurities. The fire sets ablaze a passionate desire to know the Lord, to burn with zeal, to serve Jesus. And who causes this burning in the soul? Well, the Holy Spirit does. It's God's Spirit who opens the eyes of the heart, who enlightens our minds with the knowledge of Christ. The Spirit causes the Word to be understood, to be embraced with power and full conviction. The heart of the believer isn't merely awakened as though from sleep or raised from a state of death to life. Another image is the heart is kindled with fire a fervent love to serve God, a burning desire to leave sin behind and go the way of the Master. I think we can see something of this in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called to a really hard ministry for about 40 years to preach to a people who won't listen. Can you imagine that? 40 years preaching to a people who won't listen. And not just they won't listen, but they'll mock you and abuse you. Jeremiah is put in stocks. Jeremiah is thrown in a cistern. In view of the pain of rejection and the physical assaults, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 20 verse 9, I will not mention Him, that is the Lord, or speak any more in His name. I'm going to go dark. I can't bear how these people are not responding and the way they're attacking. I'm just not going to talk about the Lord anymore. But then Jeremiah further says, But if I say I will not mention Him or speak any more in His name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. The Spirit of God has set Jeremiah's heart aflame and urged him to speak. He can't but speak. He's devoted in the service of the Lord. Others have used this language to speak of their own salvation. In 1738, John Wesley had returned to England from a failed missionary endeavor in the colony of Georgia. His preaching bore little to no fruit. His soul was rocked with trouble. And indeed, on the trip over, there was a storm on the Atlantic. And in the midst of that, Wesley was terrified. He lacked peace. He wasn't He didn't feel as if he was ready to die, that he could meet the Lord. And then there are believers on that ship who gather to sing. And he doesn't feel like singing. And it convicted him deeply. So he gets back to England and he reports in his journal on the 24th of May, 1738. In the evening I went, I love this honesty, very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. You ever come to church very unwillingly, but you still came? That was Wesley. And when he went to that meeting, there was one reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while the preacher was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. And out of that warmed heart, Wesley preached the Gospel with a new power, what one is called the expulsive power of a new affection. We could think of John Calvin's seal. Many say John Calvin is too intellectual, 
He's boring. He borders on the Stoic, uh, a Stoic emphasis, it seems. I tell you, brethren, that that truth is alto- the truth is altogether different. Calvin had a picture, which was his seal, of a burning heart in his hand. And the motto was, My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. In other words, he's saying, My heart burns for you, and I'm eager to give my life to you. I ask us, beloved, has our heart been set aflame with the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Has the Word of God touched your affections? Has the Bible opened up the preaching of Christ, of salvation in Him, that He suffered in the believer's place, that Jesus was raised so that you could have peace with God? Has that caused your heart to glow with passion for the Lord? We sang at the beginning of this service, Francis Scott Key's hymn, and yes, you know that name. He wrote our our national anthem. But it was his hymn. Do you remember the words? Lord, with glowing heart I praise Thee for the bliss Thy love bestows, for the pardoning grace that saves me, and for the peace which from it flows. Is the pardoning grace of God in Jesus Christ causing your heart to burn with intense ardor that Christ would love you, that Christ would save you, that you could be drawn near to fellowship with God? There's something wrong with us if our heart doesn't burn over that truth. This is what should be true, not just of the preacher, but of every believer. Christ baptizing with the Spirit lights us up so that we are now light in the Lord. Brethren, have your affections been touched by the truth? So you don't know just the truth here, but you feel the truth. The preaching of Jesus did that in these men as He opened up the Word of God. The end was that their minds would be enlightened and their affections would be set aflame so that they would serve Christ. Is that happening to us? Again, notice that it's the Scripture preached and explained. Not a rock and roll band with driving music. Not a mystical experience with chanting and smells and bells. It's the Word of Christ proclaimed that causes the heart to burn. Many today seek an experience so that worship services are being called worship experiences. Jesus models here the preached Word stirring your heart. Well, may the preaching that comes from this pulpit be the kind that sets your heart aflame for Christ. Finally, see with me, proclaiming tongues. These two disciples have burning hearts and what, when your heart burns, what do you want to do? Tell everyone. And that's what they do. Verse 33, even though they had sat down to eat, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. It's like the woman at the well who came to get water. But after Jesus reveals Himself, what happens to her water jar? She just leaves it behind and runs to tell people. I'm sure the seven-mile trek from Emmaus back to Jerusalem was much faster this time as they raced to tell people what had happened. And they get there out of breath, ready to tell their story in verse 33. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. In other words, they say, wait, get in line, guys. 
We've got our own story to tell. We have this amazing episode that the Lord appeared to Peter. And we now know, apart from what the women saw, because to be honest, we just regarded what they said to be an idle tale. We thought they were crazy. But now we know the Lord has risen indeed. The word indeed conveys emphatically that something is true. This is really the case. Well, now the eleven and the others with them understand the resurrection of Jesus is no fantasy. It's not the wishful thinking of confused women. It's true. It's real. Jesus is exalted. He has conquered death. Our sin has been washed away. And think about what mercy is shown here. That Jesus would appear to Peter. Cephas is his Greek name. To Peter. He's the first among the apostles to see the risen Christ. What an incredible demonstration of Christ's grace. Do you remember the last time they saw each other? When their eyes met after Peter had denied his Lord three times and he went out and wept bitterly. But Jesus had told him before that I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter's faith didn't fail. And he hasn't been publicly restored yet, as John 21 will record. But love in Peter continues for the Lord and love for Peter from the Lord is there. And recognition now that Peter is a leader among the apostles. Jesus appears to him first. Well, once the band already present in Jerusalem hears the story, now Cleopas and friend get to tell their story. Verse 35, Then they told what had happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. These disciples shared not their sermon notes, but their heart notes. How the Word had pressed to their heart We don't know how much of the content of the sermon they remembered. Who could remember a two and a half to three hour sermon? But they told the whole story. And it's likely that Luke talked to Cleopas. That's why we have his name. He's a well-researched historian. He tells us that at the very beginning. Now, I just want you to stand back as we wrap it up here and think about the scene. Earlier in the day, at the breaking of dawn, It was a message the women had heard from angels that Jesus was risen from the dead. And of course, what did they do? They raced back to tell the group. And throughout the day, it appears that reports came to the gathered group. We have the story of Mary seeing Jesus, John 20. Of the women seeing Jesus, Matthew 28. And of Peter here seeing Jesus. And the impression is that these matters were flowing in throughout that first Lord's Day. And now at the very end of the day, we have another report of Jesus appearing on the road to Emmaus. But again, there was a concern to tell this news to everybody. Do you see, the believers are gathered in conference together, telling each other about the discovery and confirmation of truths, explaining their observations, their experiences, communicating to each other what they saw and felt. Shouldn't that be a model to us of how to relate to each other in the body of Christ? We're not going to have the experience this side of glory of seeing the resurrected Christ. But shouldn't we testify to one another of the Lord meeting with us? Of how the Lord pressed truth to my heart? How He caused my affections to burn within me? You know, so often Christians gather and worship And then they go out and talk about their jobs and their trials and their house projects and the football games yesterday and so on. 
And I'm not saying we shouldn't share those things. We share life together. So we should be willing to talk about whatever comes up. Though maybe the Lord's Day is not the time to do most of that. Shouldn't we rather share what Christ has taught us? How He set my heart on fire with preaching. How truth comforted me in this affliction this week, in the face of that really hard thing, God came close and He gave me this Word and He helped me and He comforted my soul. Shouldn't we tell one another of what we have known and felt with regard to the truth as it's found in Jesus? It's not just that the Word of Christ should cause you to be willing to speak to the unbeliever. It should. But we should wish for a thousand tongues to sing to proclaim God's goodness to one another. Because if your heart has been set aflame, you can't but tell the story. Well, brother, may, may we tell one another the story of the nearness of Christ's presence, of how He is such a wonderful Savior and all that He's done to make Himself known to our souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless You for this wonderful text about eyes that have been opened and hearts that burn and tongues that are ready to proclaim Christ and His grace. And Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray that You would open our eyes spiritually to who Jesus is, to His Lordship, His majesty, that You would cause our hearts to be touched with Your truth so that we would be transformed by the power of Your Holy Spirit and long to know Jesus better. Lord, we pray that we would crave the presence of our Savior. And we do ask that You would help us to learn, to share with one another the great things that You have done for our souls. Lord, would You continue to be with us as we bless Your great and holy name. For we pray it all. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.